Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Stephen DeWitt, and I'm glad to be with you here today. Um, if you're the kind of person that wants to hold something in front of you while you read, why don't you take out your Bible uh, and turn to Luke chapter 9. If you're using the Bible we've provided for you, it's on page 1,477. Luke chapter 9, like Sam said, today is uh, Transfiguration Sunday, so we're going to read Luke's account. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have accounts of um, this Transfiguration story. This morning we're going to read Luke's. Uh, but in order to kind of glean as much as we possibly can from this very important event, we're going to read the story in some more of its context. So we're going to start reading actually at verse 18. So we're going to read verses 18 through 20, then read the story of the transfiguration, and then we're going to read the story that immediately follows the transfiguration. So we'll start reading here. There's, um, the reason we're going to start at verse 18, there's a very important epiphany question that happens uh, in verse 18, and then I think also again in verse 20. Um, so listen for this big epiphany question. Luke Chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. Listen to God's word. Once when Jesus was praying in private with his and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Hmm, interesting, right? Okay, now to verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter and John and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. And they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but they, when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. And continuing on, the next day, when they had came down from the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. And a man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams and throws himself into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? 
bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. This is the word of the Lord. So every year in the season of Epiphany, uh, this is the time of year where we kind of rediscover more and more and more of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so every year, the season of Epiphany comes to a conclusion with this dramatic story, the transfiguration story, because this is the story where things really, really start to become clear. So... All throughout the story of Jesus to this point, people are asking a lot of questions about Jesus. Things like, who is this man? Isn't this Mary's son? Who is this man that he has the power to forgive sins? Who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man? And then in verses 18 to 20, Jesus finally asks this question himself to his disciples. He says, hey, who do people say that I am? What are the crowds saying about me? And then even more pointedly, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who is never afraid to put himself out there, answers Jesus' question very honestly and boldly, and he says, you know what? I think that you're the Messiah of God. And Peter was right. That is the great epiphany question, and that is the great epiphany answer. Jesus is God's Messiah. The only problem is that, to this point, nobody had any idea what on earth that meant. It's the right answer to the right question, but not a single soul knew any of the implications of any of this. So in the scripture that we read today, Jesus is beginning to answer this question. He's beginning to shed some light on this. What does it mean that he is God's Messiah? And Jesus answers this question in two different ways by showing us two different things. First of all, there's that transfiguration story. So Peter, James, and John go with Jesus up onto a mountaintop and something incredible happens, right? Jesus' face changed. We don't even really know what that means. And his clothes become bright white, almost like lightning. And there's this this kind of otherworldly, glorious air about him that Jesus has never had before. It's this, this strange supernatural event. And then out of nowhere, the two most important people in all of Jewish history show up um, right next to Jesus, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And they're standing there with Jesus, and they're talking to him as though they know him, as though they know who this guy is. And they're even talking to him in a way that that they're kind of yielding to him. They're kind of submitting to him, almost like Jesus is superior to them. Like they are the ones who are in awe. Like they are the ones who are deeply honored to be in his presence. And then this thunderous voice comes out of this mysterious cloud and says, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And it got the disciples' attention. They were sleepy. (laughs) 
which they tend to be at the most important times, but it got their attention. So never before have Peter and James and John seen something so beautiful and so holy and so powerful and so miraculous and so otherworldly. It was like this vision of heaven. It was so good and it was so pure that it didn't resemble anything like they had ever experienced before. They had absolutely nothing to compare it to. And since they had never experienced something like this before, they didn't really know how to act. They didn't know what was the right thing to do in the situation. So Peter, again, just leading with himself, he's like, hey, this is great. It's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters so that everybody has a place to stay and so that we never have to go back down the mountain and so that this can become normal for us. That's really what Peter was saying. How can we make this What continues to happen? How can we keep this party going? How can we make things so that they never have to change? How can I have an experience so that this is my only experience? Let's put up three shelters and let's go nowhere. I can't blame him, right? You can't blame him. We all know what it's like to have to leave a place that we don't want to leave. Well, for Peter, this was more intense than anything you and I have ever experienced in our lives in that way. Moses and Elijah and Jesus, the law and the prophets and the Messiah. This moment was the fulfillment of all of Peter's religious hopes. Think about that for a second. Every prayer you've ever offered, everything you've ever hoped for from God, Every spiritual connection, every spiritual emotion, every spiritual intimacy, every spiritual reality you had ever hoped for in all your life, Peter had that. In a moment, he had it. And he said, let's not change anything. Everything that he had believed with his heart, he was suddenly seeing with his eyes. Why would anybody want to leave that place? Who wouldn't want to put up a shelter and stay? But then just as Peter is starting to lay the blueprints for their new little spiritual community, the law and the prophets disappear. (laughs) And Jesus doesn't look nearly as good as he did a few minutes ago. He's back to Jesus 1.0. And Peter's looking around and he's wondering, what on earth is happening? Why wouldn't things stay this way? But at least they had the answer to the epiphany question, right? Jesus had asked, who do the crowds say that I am? Wait, 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 even more pressing, who do you say that I am? And Peter leads with himself and he says, I know you are God's Messiah. And he was right. He had no idea what that meant, but he was absolutely right. Well, at least now they knew that more than they did before, right? At least now this is more clear than it has ever been because Jesus has been glorified and he's been illuminated and he's been transfigured. And it's obvious that he's, out, he, he's, he's on the Christ or he's the Christ because Peter has seen him up on the mountain and Moses and Elijah are at his right and his left. That's who Jesus is, right? Yes, that is who Jesus is. And if Jesus would have stayed there like Peter wanted him to, Jesus would have only ever been that. 
If Jesus had listened to Peter's plans for his life and ministry, Jesus would still be up on that mountain. And he would still be glowing. And he would still be perfectly clean and immaculate and transfigured and glorious and just out of reach. One of my favorite commentators says that the most important part of the transfiguration story is what happens after the transfiguration story. The most important part of the transfiguration story is what happens after the transfiguration story. Because not only does Jesus go back down the mountain, but he goes back down into a situation that is particularly depressing to a situation that is particularly desperate. There's a little boy who's having convulsions. Um, I spent a little time on Google this week. I thought, boy, wouldn't it be fun to show a, a, a picture, like, like fine art of Jesus transfigured? There's lots of examples of that. Guess how much fine art I found of the boy with uh, convulsions? Zero. There's this little boy who's having convulsions and he's screaming and he's red in the face and he's rolling on the ground and he's foaming at the mouth and nobody can help him. The disciples have tried to help him and they can do absolutely nothing. His parents have tried literally everything. No one can help the boy until Jesus comes down from the mountain. He takes one look at the boy. He understands that he is the only one who can do anything for the boy and he takes them takes him, and he heals him. I don't know where Peter's mind was in this moment. I don't know if he understood at the time. But just like that transfiguration story was an answer to the question, who is Jesus? So is this second story, an answer to the question, who is Jesus? The question gets answered twice. Two different places. It gets answered on the top of the mountain when Jesus is transfigured and glorious, when he's glowing, when his face is like lightning, and when everything is pure and it is clean and it is exactly how we would want it and everything is in its right place and everything is heavenly. But then the question also gets answered by Jesus down in the mud when it feels like hell. And when he takes a very, very sick boy, a convulsing boy, into his arms, a boy with vomit all over his clothes, and the creator of the universe holds him tightly in his forearms and squeezes him until he stops trembling. That also is the answer to the same question. Who is is God's Messiah? It occurs to me that neither one of these stories would be complete without the other. You know what I mean? Like, they need each other. The transfiguration story needs the convulsing boy story. The convulsing boy story needs the transfiguration story. Because if it weren't for both of them, we would have a very confused idea of who Jesus is. There is something so glorious about Jesus And there is something so earthly about him. 
there's something so transcendent about our faith in Christ, and there's also something very humbling about our faith in Christ. One of the great temptations about following Jesus is to only ever follow part of him. I catch myself doing this often. I catch this church doing that often. It's one of the most tempting things in the universe to only follow part of Jesus, to only practice that part of the Christian faith that feels to make the most sense to us, maybe feels the most comfortable to us. If we only ever had mountaintop Jesus, imagine what Christianity would look like. Imagine what our faith would look like. It would be a very particular kind of faith, right? With a very particular kind of goal. We would be aiming for a very clean faith. We'd be looking to practice a very precise kind of faith, a very refined faith, a transcendent faith, an otherworldly faith. But something happens when Jesus comes back down the mountain. When Jesus comes back down the mountain, he brings all of that meaning and all of that holiness and all of that divinity and all of that transcendence back down with him. He takes all of the holiness of that situation and he brings it down into the very ordinary, very unholy, very real sickness of the human life. When Jesus comes back down from the mountaintop, it shows us that it's not just the mountaintops that are holy, but he brings that holiness down into the very human parts of our existence. Have you ever noticed how certain memories or associations of a place can transform a place from something very ordinary into something almost sacred? Let me tell you what I mean. Here's an example. I've never been, but there is a pub in Oxford, England, that people love to visit, especially tourists. Um, apparently, the beer, the beer is flat, and the food is mediocre at best and way overpriced, but people come from all over the world just to have the right to drink that flat beer and to pay way too much for that crummy food. Why? Why do people do that? It's because this is the exact same pub where J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis would meet just about every night. After long days of writing and lecturing at Oxford, they would get together and they'd meet at the Eagle and the Child and they'd criticize each other and, and pick apart each other's writing. Because these two men spent so much time there, this very ordinary place with the flat beer and the overpriced food has become something of a sacred place. And people flock there. And they walk in there with a sense of awe. The place down the street, way better prices, way better food, but they can't get people in the door. But people walk into the eagle and the child and they go, wow. It's because there are two people who brought a significance to that place that wasn't there before. 
Because of these two men, that pub has become something sacred. It's, it's made that pub more valuable. The same principle is in place when Jesus comes back down from that mountain. Suddenly, the place at the foot of the mountain is also sacred. Our lives have been injected with something meaningful. Our world has been injected with something meaningful. Our lives are valuable because Jesus came down from the mountain. We might assume that God's Messiah is just this perfect, beautiful, idyllic, transfigured, glorious figure on the top of the mountain, and he is, don't get me wrong, but he also came down the mountain. He came into the valley, into the mud, squeezing the convulsing boy with vomit on his clothes. This too is God's Messiah. And when the Messiah came down the mountain, he brought all the holiness with him. This too is the Jesus that we're meant to celebrate in the Epiphany. So what does it mean for us that Jesus came back down the mountain? It means that God's Messiah has injected our world with a value that it does not have on its own. It means that our Monday mornings have significance, that our Monday mornings are sacred, that our concerns are sacred, that our struggles are sacred, that the projects with which we concern ourselves are sacred, that our mundane existence is sacred. It means that the Christian faith is not just something that happens up there on the mountaintops in immaculate places where we can perfectly see everything that we believe. It also happens at the foot of the mountain where mostly we're just seeing our own doubt. It means that Jesus is personally, intimately invested in the issues of this world where we live with our convulsing children, with our social ills, Jesus is invested in these things and we ought to be as well. Our love for Jesus is not an excuse to avoid talking about the challenging issues of our time. Our love for Jesus is the reason that we engage in the challenging issues of our time. Our love for Jesus is the reason that we talk about hard things. It's the reason that we talk about racism in America. It's the reason that we talk about what it means to be faithful when it comes to human sexuality. It's the reason that we welcome the refugee. It's the reason that we take an offering for homeless youth in Grand Rapids. It's the reason that we mentor at-risk children at Kenosha Elementary School. It's because the holiness has come down the mountain. Our love for Jesus is the reason that we disciple our children. It's the reason that we confess our sins. 
It's the reason that we hold one another accountable against the powers and the principalities of this world which can so easily lead us astray. Our love for Jesus is the reason that we ask the hard questions about our faith. It's the reason we have the hard conversations about our reality. And it's the reason we speak honestly about our unfulfilled desires. Jesus is invested in our mountaintop experiences and he's also invested in our valley experiences. And we can be as well. can be so tempting to want to escape. It can be so tempting to just follow the one brand of Jesus, to practice the one brand of Christianity. It can be so tempting to want to build those little shelters on top of that mountain. But as soon as we start to lay the plans, Jesus says, time to go. Can we nurture, I wonder, can we nurture a faith that is able to go back and forth between the mountaintop and the valley? As a faith community, can we nurture a faith that's able to go back and forth between the ecstatic and the earthly? Between our hope for the future and a real view of of the present? to go back and forth between all of our hope and all of our pain. What might it look like for you and I to nurture that kind of faith together? What are the mountaintop realities and the down mountain realities that Jesus is asking us to hold together at exactly the same time? Because he is the Christ of both of them. And for those of us who are maybe particularly focused on things that are down mountain, what are the new hopes that the transfigured Christ would dare us to have? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we recognize that to follow you is to follow you into a paradox where all at once we behold your glory and all at once we share with you the world's pain. It's a hard balance for us to strike, Lord Jesus. Our prayer is that together as we walk forward from this place, this moment of epiphany and into the season of Lent, that you would show us more clearly how you straddle both heaven and hell. How you come to be both lamb and shepherd. How you are our savior and our friend. Teach us, Lord Jesus, to see things clearly in the pain around us, and also the hope before us. In your holy name we pray. Amen.